So welcome back to Relationship Revisions with Wit and Hillary. Uh, the topic that we'll be discussing today is we're focusing on revising our relationship with how we view entrepreneurship and business mentors. Our guest today is Catherine Corley. Catherine has over 20 years of corporate experience in strategy, marketing, finance, and leading teams with top retail and CPG companies. She's been a vice president of member program development at Sam's Club, a vice president of food service marketing at Tyson Foods, and started working with the Arkansas Small Business and Technology Development Center's Fayetteville office during the COVID-19 pandemic. She's been a champion for small businesses throughout her career. Welcome, Catherine. We're so excited to have you on. Thank you for having me. Yes. Oh my gosh. What an incredible background of business and leadership. So I wanted to start out with my first question is what drew you to invest in small business owners and entrepreneurs in the mentoring capacity versus like hanging up your, your own shingles as a consultant? Well, I've kind of been affiliated with small business throughout my career. So when I was at Tyson, we worked with small restaurants, mom and pop restaurants, and, and that's who I largely helped out during COVID. And then when I was at Sam's Club as vice pre- president of membership, small business was, you know, a large part of our membership base. Wow. So I really advocated for them then. I, I am a consultant, but I work for a nonprofit. So we're able to offer our services for free. Mm-hmm. And after my corporate career, I just, I really wanted to leverage my skills and experience to help entrepreneurs and small business owners right here in my backyard in Northwest Arkansas. That's amazing. I think that's wonderful. I I work pretty closely with the folks in the ASBTDC over in Northeast Arkansas at Arkansas State because they're right across the the green from me. And I actually just had somebody come guest speak in my class Monday. Yeah, you must know them because it just rolls off your tongue and it doesn't most people. (laughs) ASBTDC is a mouthful. (laughs) It it is. And it took me, let me tell you what, it took me about 18 months to get there. And I actually watched, I watched Robert when he was guest speaking in my class, he stumbled over it. And I was like, well, I feel better now. Well, I, I think that's so interesting. I think that the the transition from the corporate world into small business consulting is interesting. And I love that you chose to go work with the ASBTDC because they do such incredible work when you absolutely could have hung up your shingle as a consultant. And I imagine probably it would have been a more lucrative, but also probably less contained kind of existence because consulting can kind of eat up as much time as you give it. So <laughs> I think that's fantastic. I'm curious, you obviously have considerable subject matter expertise that you bring into your mentorship with these individuals and these small companies. Do you have any particular strengths or interests that you bring to your mentoring? So my greatest gift in the business area is strategic thinking. And so that's primarily what I bring to the businesses to, you know, help guide them in their business ventures. However, you know, 30 years in corporate America, I've had my bumps and bruises in relationships and being a woman trying to climb the corporate ladder. So I I am also equally comfortable, you know, helping them learn, especially from some of my mistakes that I made during my career and navigate those challenges. I love that. I like that you mentioned earlier that in your career, working with Tyson and other industries, you were exposed to mentoring programs so my, I guess my question is going to be more of like on a personal angle, since you can draw so much from your experience, how valuable was mentorship to you over your, your own career development? 
So I'm a little older. <laughs> and when I was early in my career, there really were no formal mentoring programs. And, you know, at that time, there weren't that many women in leadership positions. So most of the mentoring that was happening was male executives informally mentoring other males. Mm. And so when I worked for Tyson Foods, there was an industry association called the Women's Food Service Forum. And it was specifically put together to give women the chance to come together and be supported to learn leadership training. And then senior executive women were there and offered their time and talent to mentor us, both formally and informally. They really helped guide my career. It was pivotal, you know, in many instances. And I have friends and mentors through that organization for over 30 years. That's incredible. Oh, that's wonderful. Were there any significant relationships in particular that stood out to you more than another? Oh, I have some that like, we're just, we're best friends now. Yes, I have one that mentored me. I actually won an award from them and she helped me deliver my speech. I mean, it was pretty wow. good, but she put it even better and it was really high profile and it, it just, yes, it made a difference. And she was there for me, you know, as a mentor in business, but also taught me what it's like to be a friend and have that relationship and be able to talk things more that's going on in your life, you know, not just at work. Like your personal leadership as well. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you had more female mentors than male mentors? And oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, now nah, the ratio is different. Um, yeah, that's amazing. I, I have a bit of a digression. I was reading an article recently talking about employee resource groups, which I know yours was sort of at the, the industry level, but it's not uncommon in modern corporate America to have them with at the corporate level. And mm -hmm. I think it's Deloitte is moving away from doing ERGs because they feel like that sort of puts the onus for development and mentorship on the community like that the ERG is formed around. So on women or on people of color or on women of color, which is a common ERG group themselves. And that it sort of takes usually particularly white male executives. And it's like, we're all good because this group is handling it. And it sort of takes a lot of the, the onus to be active in diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives off them. Based on your experience, though, it sounds like you would be a big advocate for probably keeping those around because the relationships it gave you. Does that is that fair? Yeah, that is fair. You know, it all depends on how, how you run the ERGs. You can't just leave it to themselves and they get ahead. That doesn't happen. You need the people in power to be able to help them and open doors for them. And that usually is the white male executive. So there's a lot of truth to that. However, in coming together as a community, you can support each other because you you live the same experiences, you know, yeah. that sometimes somebody of another race or gender just don't understand. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is good to nurture it. And when I was at Walmart, I was an executive at that time. And so we had a women's officer caucus and we mentored the women that were in the ERG that were coming up and we poured into them and invested in them and really helped them. So women have to help women you know, other communities, communities of color have to help them. And then you, yes, you need the white male executives. And there's also peer mentoring that can happen. You know, I, it's different for everybody, but done correctly, I think there's value to ERGs. Just as like somebody on the outside and a solo entrepreneur, and also they're going to be listeners who don't know what this is either. What is an ERG? <laughs> Employee resource group. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like, you know, in high school, it would have been a club. Okay. 
And this happens within organizations. Yeah. So there's like women's ERG, there's Native American, there's. Okay. Yeah. You know, a black officer caucus, you know, so it's really of a particular group. Mm. And so that group gets together and they really support each other, but that group can't get ahead. I think that's the, you know, the point Deloitte's making, and it's a valid point, you know, because who's in power? Mm. Well, the people in power are usually the white male executives. And so you need them to engage too. Right. But it's a great place for them to learn about, you know, what are, what are colleagues, what are our employees experiencing in this workplace, you know, and ERGs can help guide a company and its culture to understand how included are they in that culture. Mm. And as you noted in your own experience, and I think generally they open up a lot of opportunities for mentorship by somebody that has a comparable experience, which can be really meaningful. It can be useful to have mentors that don't have a comparable experience. I think we'll talk about that a little later, but mm-hmm. it makes you feel at home and they face the same kind of challenges you face. Yes. So it sounds like you need, you need both. You don't need to just do away with one and only have, it's a kind of a both and dance in that environment. I think that's probably DEI and the whole is the both and. Yeah, I'll digress a little. And I have one story from the Women's Food Service Forum. And, you know, I was very young, like when, you know, when I started, I wasn't at the vice president level yet. And matter of fact, I was having my first child and I was really concerned about what, how that was going to impact my career. And I remember going to one of our annual conferences and they had round tables with mentors and they had it by topic. And one of them was taking care of a child, you know, being a mother in the workplace. And I was like, what? Wow. There's people that are struggling with yeah. this. Like me? And I got to sit down with these other moms in here and they all had different stories about how they were navigating it. You know, how they were finding childcare support, the challenges they were having and just being able to come together and be able to, you know, tell about my own experience and hear what others were doing. Just, it made such a difference for me. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I love that. What a cool story. So uh, your mentorship these days is particularly targeted towards entrepreneurs and small business owners. That's who the ASBTDC helps. People who are starting small businesses or have existing small businesses, they're trying to grow. Do you find that there's a big mindset difference between that Fortune 500 corporate America background that you have and the background of the entrepreneurs that you're coaching? Yes. Yeah. It's a totally different world. (laughs) And the mentoring also, you know, is different in some ways. And in some ways it's the same. So the ways in which it's different and corporate America, you mentor people, you know, chiefly to help them navigate the corporate culture and help them figure out their path to move forward in the organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For entrepreneurs, you're really using your experience and skills to help them guide them in the creation of their business mm. and and importantly, opening doors to your network, you know, because they're small. They need to know people. They need to know people that can help them. It's kind of like, you know, in a corporation, you want to introduce them to senior leaders who could potentially promote them. Well, here you want to introduce them to partners, to funders, you know, anybody in your network that can help them. Uh, So there's some similarities and and differences for entrepreneurs. It's also very lonely, Mm -hmm. you know, so they need someone that can, you know, 
can be there for them, be a sounding board for them. Sometimes give them a pat on the back because they have no one around that <laughs> tells them they're doing a good job. And then sometimes also holding them accountable, mm-hmm. you know, because they really don't have the structure and processes. And, you know, for both of them, it's really about championing the individual, you know, being their, their cheerleader, encouraging them. And she does a great job at that. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be right back, folks. Have you had to have you had to change your own mindset going into this different kind of mentoring setting? Or do you feel like it's been a pretty natural shift from corporate to entrepreneur? Oh, I definitely have to change my mindset, you know. But hey, I'm a marketer and I'm always Whitney, you'll know this. Know your target audience. You know, I talk about this a lot. And my audience as an entrepreneur in a small business, they're going through very different challenges and struggles and They have different ways of thinking. So absolutely, I need to adapt to them. And that's my goals because at the end of the day, I want to be helpful to them. So I need to understand their world and I need to have a mindset that fits with theirs. So when you are working as a consultant and mentor, what are some common blind spots that you see with entrepreneurs and small business owners? Yeah, and it's it's mostly on the business side. Well, I guess I can think of one on, on kind of relationship side too. One on the business side would be they're in love with their idea. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and maybe their family and friends are in love with their idea, but they aren't customers, you know? And so really trying to help, you know, validate, is this a good idea is something that I work a lot with entrepreneurs. And then the other one, I'll say the, the best entrepreneurs to work with are the ones that are coachable, the ones that are open. You know, and there's some that really don't want to hear that their idea is not good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they really don't want to do the work that it takes. And and working in entrepreneurship, it's I, it is hard work. Mm-hmm. And so some of them don't want to do the work. Those are challenges. Might be a blind spot or not. They might know they have it, but those are the ones that it's it's a little bit more of a challenge. So inflexibility basically, like either to be being coached or to well, or just they want someone that's you know affirms what they say yeah a yes person you know? <laughs> that's not my job <laughs> yeah it's like it's not my job to tell you your 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 idea is a good idea and you might not like me for telling you your idea is not a good idea oh my gosh but you'd be saving them so much time as well right. like and that's so valuable I mean being as an entrepreneur you have people that surround you that want to support you and like want to like build up your idea but you also need people who've been in the industry that also understand like the pivots and the shifts that you're going to have to take and why that wouldn't, you know, potentially. So yeah, I get it. Yeah. And I try not to flat out say it's a bad idea, but you know, I do guide them, you know, with some tools to help them go find out, Mm -hmm. go talk to customers, go make sure. Yeah. Do your research. This is something they want and then let them tell you if it's a good idea or not a good idea. I, I do that all the time. Oh, I think I think maybe you need to spend some more time in the customer discovery process. Yes. Customer discovery is the most important thing you can do. Mm-hmm. It, it is. It saves you a lot of time and money. Yes, it does. So you said you have some resources that you use. What are some of those processes or pieces that are like practical wisdom that you share with these business owners and entrepreneurs? You know, through my career, I was in marketing and product development. So it was really all about understanding my target audience, understanding my competitive position and making sure that I had a a superior value proposition in the marketplace. So I used just the wisdom I've gained and the tools that I've had over the years to work with them on those areas. 
Mm. Strategy really is your space. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) In in my experience, which is much more limited than yours, but that's probably the best and like most helpful thing you can do as you're coaching entrepreneurs is to help them think through those strategic components because they're the ones that have to do the work. And they're the ones that have to call the insurance guy and that have to get the product in the door and have to put the price tags on the shelves or whatever. But thinking through the strategy, your value proposition, how you're positioned against your competition, that's the stuff that's, it's hard in a different way. And there's room for a lot more external help there, I think. Yeah. And it's really helpful, you know, cause I've worked with Catherine like, and on an experiential level, you are always having to come up with strategy on your own and strategy naturally has been my strength, but when it's by yourself or when you are a sole entrepreneur and you're moving into the space of hiring new people, it's hard to find other individuals who do exactly what you do, especially in the field of like consulting or where your product is you trying to bounce off ideas of like, how does that work? And how do I pivot and shift and make like these really value proposition pieces Breaking them down, you need to have those sort of allies in your corner or someone who has clarity around this is a subject matter expert, basically. It is so, so important what you do. And I'm so grateful for what you do. You have no idea. (laughs) And like, I, I mean, being in business for as long as I have been, I really wish I would have had somebody earlier on. So if there's anyone listening that's thinking about like getting a business mentor or consultant, and you think there's no resources out there available to you, really check in on this. Cause I kind of glossed over it when I moved here. Keep, you know, keep dipping, dipping your toe into that research water, especially if you're in NWA, we've got some incredible resources. Yeah. I'll plug, I'll plug ASB TDC. Again, our services are for free and we've got different types of experts on our team. We have marketing experts, financial ex- experts, strategy experts. So we're here to help. (laughs) Every every state has its own SBDC or SBTDC, and they're funded in part with, you know, federal grants and through the Small Business Administration. So regardless of where you are, there are resources about, they're typically affiliated with your local university, although not always. And they're, they're usually a state level network. They're awesome resources. And you're right, absolutely different kinds of people with different kinds of expertise. But if you're looking for a business coach, it's a great place to start. Absolutely. Yeah. I recently put together a leadership development course for our MBAs. And one of the places that I was really intrigued by the advancements that's happened kind of in the leadership space and in the mentorship space in the last few years has been this increasing emphasis on reverse mentorship. And this was starting to be mentioned, I don't know, probably about 10 years ago in the literature, but it was very wishy-washy as a concept and it's it's firmed up. I'm curious whether you have any experience with it. And if so, do you feel like it's been beneficial? I guess like I haven't gone into with intention of reverse mentorship, which sounds like a good idea. And because I do believe like in any mentoring relationship at the outset, you should have a goal. What do I want to get out of this? And so I would really have to be in the mindset of, okay, I'm reverse mentoring for a reason. And this is it in my role. Obviously I work with a lot of younger entrepreneurs and small business owners, and they're primarily pursuing this path the majority of them, not because they want to make a lot of money, you know, and have the next Apple, but because they really want to have better work-life balance. So that's been good for me because I did the corporate career for so long and it was work, work, work. And that was my priority. 
and I've learned to set better boundaries now and I'm investing more in family and, and friends. I don't know that I would say entrepreneurship is the place I would turn for better work-life balance. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> There's like a lot of them that eat ramen noodles and they're working seven days a week, but I guess because they, they feel it's better work-life balance. I don't know. Well, it's yours. And I think I, sometimes that makes the work not quite so onerous. Yeah. Yeah. And just some of them don't want to have a boss. They want to be their own boss. And that, that makes sense too. <laughs> yeah. And I think you also have to have like a type of, well, strategic discipline. If you, I mean, you could easily leave that corporate world and become an entrepreneur. And I've had friends who've done that and then pop back in the corporate world because they didn't realize the structure around them allowed them to kind of belly ache a little bit. <laughs> oh yeah. But when you have to do all that work, I think sometimes you think being an entrepreneur is an escape, but it's not. Um, it's just a different type of workspace and mm -hmm. you'll get really tested. I, when I first started in business, I remember someone said, you know, nobody really wants to work with you until you hit your five-year marker. And I said, well, that's dangerous because what if I don't make it to my five-year marker? <laughs> you really have to put in the work. And I get that. I understand that now because it's, people want experiential knowledge. They want to know that you stand the test of time and consistency and reliability is really important. So work-life balance to me is kind of a, um, to, for me in particular, I feel like is a facade. I think you have to be very intentional about what it is that you want from work and what that work means to you. And then like, yeah, um, it's different for everybody. What kind of life do you want to actually build? So I had an entrepreneur in my class a couple of weeks ago who said work-life balance isn't a thing. It's, it's a rhythm. There's a work-life rhythm, but it's never really in balance. It just, the nature of what's coming first or how things are kind of playing forward and backwards is a rhythm. That's my favorite word. <laughs> you already know. I, know. I, know. <laughs> I think it's, 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 yes, it's rhythm and it's flexibility and it's flexibility to be able to have your own rhythm. And that was one of the things that was hard in corporate America is, you know, you just had to find work times that you needed to be there Never mind, you know, that you have a child, you're trying to get ready to go to school and you have all these other things. And there was just less flexibility until the pandemic. And I do think that's a good outcome of the pandemic. Mm. And then to your other point, I admire entrepreneurs because they do have to do everything themselves. In corporate, you're cushy. You've got, you can just go to the marketing department and ask for marketing. You can go to research department, and ask for your research. You go get at manufacturing. You know, you have all kinds of infrastructure. And if you're a solopreneur, you're doing it all yourself. <laughs> Thank God for people like you. <laughs> I know that you've said you've got a lot of experiential knowledge. And to me, that transfers into the word called understanding, because I think that you can't get understanding until you go through something. I was curious as, is there any story in particular in your own career, like a challenge or adversity? Because I see adversity as that place of experiential knowledge and lots of people will avoid adversity and they want their lives to be cushy and get frustrated with challenges. But I think that that's one of the best places to learn. Oh, yeah. You, you're in the corporate America for, you know, close to 30 years. You're going to have some adversity. And so I got downsized at one point in my corporate career and I was high level. I was at a vice president level. Oof. I had just never even contemplated the fact that work would not need me. Again, I was a workaholic. I was there all the time. Like, 
this organization is not going to survive if I'm gone. Well, guess what? (laughs) (laughs) They could survive just fine. So it was very humbling Mm. to me. And I also had felt at the time that my work was my identity. Mm. And so it was an important lesson for me to learn that I am more (laughs) than my work. Mm -hmm. And, and there's a lot more about me and a lot more things that are important to me than work. So it was, it was definitely a big life lesson for me. Did that come right away? Or are you like me? It takes a little while before you actually sit down and reflect. Oh, no, I was shocked. You were shocked into reflection. <laughs> first, I was shocked and, you know, and went through grieving, you know, of a job loss and what, what am I going to do? And fortunately I had mentors and friends that stepped in, swooped in and been through it and helped guide me through it and supported me through it, mm. you know, and then you come to accept, yes, these are these hard rocks, these hard lessons in life. And thankfully, somebody who's been through it before could guide me through it and share the experiences that I was having and help you come out at the other end and and appreciate, you know, that, yes, this was hard. It was a struggle. This is this is, you know, life lessons being taught. Yeah. And it's okay. Yes. And this is how you get back on your feet. You know, like you will rise again. But yeah, I'm glad that you were in a position that you have people around you that helped you slow down and like reflect. I see that same issue happen a lot of times. I'm a leadership development coach and I watch leaders repeat the same mistakes over and over again, because that's where their blind spot comes from is they didn't stop long enough to actually repair. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you had good people around you. I'm I'm intrigued by this, having to reconstruct your identity out of Catherine, the workaholic or Catherine, the, the VP. I've had to do some of that. My the profession of professor has some really, really toxic norms built into it. And there's sort of the, like, you should always be writing trope and stuff like that. And having to, to reform my identity where that's part of who I am, but that's not all of who I am, even though it may be how I spend a large chunk of my days has been really hard. Did you feel like that process was really difficult? Was there anything that helped you through it? I don't know that I necessarily learned it at that juncture. It came through time because what did I do? I went back and I got another job. (laughs) Now I was like mindful that I could lose it any day. Matter of fact, my colleagues would look at my desk and say, well, you have nothing here. There's no pictures. There's no nothing. Are are you not going to stay here? I was like, Hey, I know that if I'm out of here one day, all I have to do is grab my purse and go. (laughs) I'm not settling in. Yeah. <laughs> that one thing to find me. I did have corporate Catherine and then regular Catherine. And, you know, that was something that I learned in, in this kind of personal growth journey because I used to view going to work as I'm all work and I don't bring my emotions. I don't bring my personal life in. Mm-hmm. You know, I did maybe do some of the women's food service forum, but they were outside of my work. You know, and so that growth happened much later in my career. I wish it would have happened earlier. I wish I could have put the two together and not have this separate corporate Catherine. But that that was a big learning for me is like, yes, it is actually personal at work because you're a human being with a life and work and you're dealing with other human beings who have life and work 
And so it is very appropriate for the workplace, but that's just not, you know, in my early career, any lessons that I, I learned or even saw role modeled. Do you think some of that had to do with being a female in leadership as well? Like there's a certain standard that women are held to. We don't want to know about other women may want to know about it, but we don't want to know about it. And even some women in leadership will see that as like a weakness or a limitation. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, all the leadership competencies were designed around white males. (laughs) So essentially to succeed and to climb the corporate ladder, you had to act like a man, Mm. you know? And of course, you did not want to cry. You did not want to show emotion. I never cried. But then when people look at you as a woman and say, but I'm used to a woman being nurturing and crying. And this person is, you know, she doesn't cry and she's aggressive. You know, and you would get termed aggressive. Yeah. Although for a man, it's always appropriately assertive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's definitely that. Which makes it hard to to actually admit or be in a failed position. And I understand that. And I'm sure Hillary does as well. Like you go into these like hypervigilant states in your career. And when you do make mistakes, it makes it harder for you to kind of bounce back because it's not just owning them. It's also, it's like, it's a way that gets marked on your record and it's not easily expunged or easily forgotten. And that's unfortunate. It really is. It's very frustrating. <laughs> because everybody makes mistakes and we just need to have a little bit more grace and grant others more grace. Yeah, all across <laughs> the board. When you look back on some of those failures that you can now look at with grace because they're not wounds anymore, they're scars. What's something that that you learned from them that helped you grow? It it, it was all about relationships and all of my failure <laughs> was relationship related. I was very successful in my career. I mean, I could give me a job. I'll get it done, you know, and I had a lot of, I guess I felt a deep sense of personal obligation for the work that got done probably too much. Like, like work can't live without me. Well, actually it can. I I think I I had an overdone sense of personal Mm -hmm. obligation and I would have backed off on that and making it all about the bottom line, the goals, the deadlines, and more about the people Mm. and the relationships and investing in those relationships. And again, bringing my whole self, my personal self, my feelings, my emotions to the job that I didn't do. You said a word that resonates with me. I don't know if you're familiar with EFT is like emotional freedom training. And I was going through this exercise with other like professionals. They asked you to pick a word that you needed to feel. And for me, some of the trauma came from being in the workplace and relationships and everybody was like happy or, you know, belonging. And the word that came to me was whole. And like you said, bring your whole self. That's so hard to do because it doesn't always feel like it's psychologically safe to do that. And Mm -hmm. I think that one of the importance to me of having intentional relationships in the workplace, like a mentor or like a peer coach is if you experienced psychological unsafety, that that's an intentional space for you to rebuild that trust. Cause you both have things that you're talking about. That person gets to pour into you. The peer coach helps sharpen you and it makes it a little bit easier to kind of navigate that world. I have another word that I think is helpful and it's validation. And it's really validating somebody else, their experience, their viewpoint, whatever it is. And it, you have to take, you know, your own handcuffs off, your own blind spots, 
your own biases about what you think that person is going through and validate what they're saying and what they're going through. Mm. And I think that's a really important thing to strive for in any relationship, especially with relationships at work. Absolutely. Validation. Mm -hmm. A lot of what we're talking about here is professional and personal growth. And, And that's really a journey rather than a destination. It's sort of a lifelong pursuit how have your growth goals and experiences shifted over your career and how are you seeking to grow now? Yeah. So it's not about career growth. I'm done with the career. It's really personal growth and it's really about investing in relationships and it's using the skills that I have to really make other people's lives better. Mm. (laughs) You know, what can I do for them? It is not about me. How can I help them achieve their dreams? How can I put their needs ahead of my own? And it's working on all the things that I did wrong in relationships and trying to do it right (laughs) now. And so it is totally focused on relationships. Do you still have mentors? No, I mean, I consider everybody a mentor, like all my friends, my sister. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think, and, you know, peers, you know, and I ask and get now a lot more feedback. Um, because I think, you know, that I, I am more open, I am listening. Mm -hmm. And I think my sister has been, you know, really great with that because we've really deepened our relationship recently. So she, she, she has a lot of insight to who I am. (laughs) I have one question that I'd like to ask on that. Cause you said it's about more relationship oriented. Obviously, if you are a recovering perfectionist or workaholic, which I think a lot of us are, what is your experience with boundaries with that? Because I noticed you're like, the, sometimes that pendulum can swing from like repairing from being the overworkaholic to pouring into people. Do you have that place where you, you know, okay, this is the checkpoint of this is as much as I can give. And then that shuts off. Mm, I don't know that I've really tested that. I think it's more like, it's not just relationships and pouring into people. It is empathy. Mm-hmm. And just not treating it as, okay, this is an entrepreneur with his business. You know, this is a person, yeah. <laughs> you know, who's trying to build his business and also has other things going on in his life, you know, and so it's really just coming at it with empathy. In reflection, what is one revision you would make to how people are thinking about mentorship and professional growth? You know, again, I would say focusing on the individual and approach it like you're helping them reach their dreams and their goals. I don't want to tell someone what to do, even if it may be the wrong, you know, I want to coach and guide them and maybe they'll find out that's not what they want to do. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to do everything, you know, to build them up, encourage them, connect them with who can help them really, you know, just help them achieve their dreams um, is how I approach it. And, you know, and that includes, you know, if you have to give them some, you know, difficult to hear advice, you know, that you do that also, because at the end of the day, your intention is to help them achieve their dreams. I love that. Yeah. It's very service-minded. Yeah. Whitney and I have, have talked in the past about some of the challenges when you end up with a mentor who wants a mini me, instead of two 
I guess, enable you? Yeah, I think I could have probably classified some of my own early mentoring in the corporate career as mini me. Well, this is what I've done to be successful. So you should do this. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and even like, here's what you should want. Of course, you should want this promotion. What? Why don't you want that promotion? (laughs) No, not everybody thinks maybe they're happy where they are, you know, Mm -hmm. and let them like, if they're happy doing this and they want to grow in other professional ways and it's, they don't necessarily want to be a a high level executive. That's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think in the book, Radical Candor, she mentions that there are like rock stars and then there are superstars and sometimes rock stars are really excellent at what they're doing and they still need you to pour into them and like groom them and grow them, but they're not interested in taking that leap to be the superstar. And sometimes we force it and we push it because we just think that's obviously what you should, should want to do. It's the same thing with an entrepreneur. I mean, I've seen some, I, I know I have one entrepreneur I'm working with. She has a set of mentors who are really pushing her to scale, hmm. make this a huge global platform. And I've been coaching. I was like, well, what do you want? Is that what you want? What do you want for your life? You know, how how big do you really want to be? I just try to help them find their own way. And it's fine. If you want to scale and go global, great. But you know what? If you want to have a lifestyle business, I don't want you to feel pressure that you have. You're not successful if you're not a, you know, global multi-billion dollar company. (laughs) Yeah. Knowing your yes is in your nose. It's hard, especially as a female, because you're like, oh, here's this great opportunity. Why would I turn that down? Mm -hmm. It's hard to say no. Okay, so I have a bonus question. What is something you really enjoy doing outside of being this like incredible mentor and consultant? Being outside. (laughs) (laughs) That was quick. (laughs) I I know. I was like, that is the easiest question to answer of all because (laughs) that's why I live in Northwest Arkansas. And you know, um, I've traveled the world, but this is the most beautiful place. I absolutely love it. Every day I feel is just such a gift to be able to live in this area. That's what I love. I love that. Oh gosh. Whitney, I think we have another theme. Do we? <laughs> Outdoors, being <Yes>. outside. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All of the, all of these leaders coming through. It's like they're picking up on something. Well, and you know what? I find too, it, it sharpens me at work because when I'm outside, I can think about things and process things and I just get re-energized. It really, so I'm a big fan. And that part of the work-life balance, that's part of my life that I need to be more effective at work. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on. You are such a well of wisdom and I value you so much on my, on my professional journey. And I know that everyone else will love hearing what you had to say about this process. So thank you for your time today. Thank you for joining us. It was a a pleasure to meet you and hear some more about your story. And I'm always a huge fan of the ASBTDC and I can tell you're a huge asset to them. That's so spectacular. Well, thank you for having me. Let's talk some takeaways. What a great conversation with Catherine. It was so great to meet her. I mean, and I, again, I love the ASBTDC. You, these letters. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not making you say it. I'm saying it. No, I know. I'm so dyslexic. Gotta be like ABCDEFG. <laughs> I really, I, I said it in the episode. It took me about 18 months to be able to roll it off. I got lost in the middle. There's too many letters. I would get mixed up. <laughs> it's such an accomplishment. I enjoyed speaking with her too. She's an amazing coach. I mean, I I mentioned in the episode, she is my business coach. And I think you can hear just like 
how like strategic and straightforward she is. And she's just, there's no fuss, no nonsense with her, but yet there's this other side to Catherine, which is this experiential knowledge, this person who's been through the trenches, especially as a female in business and the ratio between men and women being so minimal, but also being somebody who's assertive, her just, her whole lens of that gave her this ability to look back. And one of the things she said is validation is important in your relationships at work. Mm-hmm. I could sense, or I could feel that that was so incredibly important to her, like that empathy, that ability to, even though you are maybe a minority in your setting, it doesn't mean that you have to dismiss somebody else's experience just because you, you've never experienced it yourself. The best thing you can do in validation, I think she exposed it was like listening and just letting people know that they're heard mm-hmm. is so important. When I loved our conversation about, you know, employee research groups and and those kind of I don't want to call them special interest groups, but like-minded people or people who are experiencing, you know, similar situations. The validation that comes from those is so important because when you are the only in a space, it's so profoundly lonely sometimes. Mm. And it's, you spend so much mental energy, at least I've, when I've been the only in those spaces, I spend a lot of mental energy often thinking about like, oh, am I being a good representative of the group that makes me different here? Or am I playing into stereotypes there? Am I being perceived the way that I'm trying to be perceived? It's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And it's so nice to be with people who share that perspective with you and can say, no, you're doing, you're doing it right. You're doing a good job. Right. I love that her journey has led her to look back as well. Mm -hmm. One of the the things that like kind of stood out to me uh, is a phrase that I even say to to people I coach is adversity is the university of life. Mm. So when you're going through it, you have to step back and ask, what is it asking of me? And she said, I don't know that I did that very well all along, but she was like, you start to look back, you know, it's, you reflect, you learn, what is this for? Mm-hmm. And part of her experience and her journey um, as a woman um, in business with all that experience that she has and she works with entrepreneurs and the similarity of those two worlds of just recognizing that you got to slow down at some point and just ask yourself, what is the next best right move for me? Mm-hmm. It may not always be taking the biggest yes. Sometimes I have to check in and stay curious to my values. Well, one of the things that we talked about was the importance of identity and self-concept and having that complex multifaceted identity as as an individual, and then being able to mostly bring that identity to the major activities in your life and the the big spaces that you inhabit. If you feel like you have to leave two thirds of yourself at home when you go to work or another major space in your life, it's, it's a, it's not healthy. Like when you feel like you can be your authentic self in most spaces of your life, which none of us can be our authentic self perfectly in all spaces of our life. That's not a thing. Um, but when you feel like you can more or less be, you know, we know from the research that you have better mental health outcomes. You are a more resilient individual at work. You have greater job satisfaction in life. You have greater life satisfaction. You're more content. You have all of these good things. You're also a more interesting person for the rest of us to talk to. (laughs) 
<laughs> when there's like multifaceted dynamics to your personality and we don't just talk about the one thing and, and at work in terms of work outcomes, right? You're more satisfied, you're more productive, you're more engaged, you're less likely to turn over like all of those things that make companies money too, but they're healthy for you. And it was interesting to hear her journey as she kind of learned that she could, she didn't have to be work Catherine and then not work Catherine. She could be Catherine. Absolutely. And the other thing that she did bring up was the dynamic between men and women, which is something we even talked about in our first episode, which the ratio of trying to bring who you are. One of the things that really kind of tugged at my heart was like, she's like, I never cried. You know, you, you know, if you're an assertive woman, when you're seen as aggressive and the metrics that she compared, what those metrics are as men mm-hmm. and that dynamic of I'm trying to assimilate into a context that didn't really create any sort of metric for me. And in so many ways, she is a like mold breaker Mm -hmm. and she had to be. And I think that that, you know, lends to some women having these sharper edges because we're not, it's not as safe for us to be as vulnerable right? or be as well human. Yeah. You can't be yourself when someone's trying to shove you into a mold that doesn't look like you. Exactly. Or you're trying to shove yourself into it so you can fit in. Exactly. No, I wanted to bring that forward too. She made the point that a lot of what we've classically considered to be leadership competencies come from male prototypes. I bring this forward front and center. I go on a little rant actually every time I teach leadership (laughs) to graduates and undergraduates because the, the classical model of leadership that we used to study is this like trait and competency based model. And the problem is, is that those are usually built on surveys of like Fortune 500 CEOs. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's bias on the researcher's part, but also if you want to survey what are the leadership competencies of Fortune 500 CEOs right now, as of this summer, your sample is 91.2% men. Mm-hmm. 8.8% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women. And if that's the sample that you choose, and it's a common like, oh, let's go look at CEOs of prominent companies and see what their leadership competencies are. They're men. You have sampling bias in that. And it doesn't necessarily always look different when women lead, but it's going to look some different, at least some of the time. And that's just not reflected in a lot of the ways that we've classically thought about leaders because the leaders in our lives have been men. Yeah. Yeah. There are some really to play, like, I guess, like the devil's advocate on some level, there are some men who get that and they are incredible allies, Mm -hmm. but it goes back to there needs to be a validation of those experiences and we need to be able to work well together in these transitions. Mm-hmm. And part of that is that validation is I see you, you're seen and you're heard. And I, I think I referenced Radical Candor where um, in that book, she she describes very much similar to Catherine's experience where you are needing that individual to like validate your experience. Mm-hmm. Not like what we talked about in our first episode where you need a man to open a door for you. But uh. if that is the ratio, there's it's much harder for us to flip that script right by ourselves we might as well i mean and i don't want to not most of my mentors were men just like Catherine, and i'm sure you've had plenty of mentors that were men as well and they can be great allies they can be great resources or they can be toxic because i've had both and the idea is like how do we speak you know truth to the powers that be in a way that creates a positive change. And sometimes it means stepping on toes and talking about the numbers and what that looks like and making it very clear that we aren't actually being validated the way that we need to be validated in this space. 
And that looks like, you know, creating metrics around what do women look like in this position and how can we push that tide forward, you know, to make the change where we can have healthier relationships in the workplace. So it's psychologically safe for others, whether it's women, whether it's people of color. Well, and something I really appreciate that the leadership research has moved more towards is this idea of situational or or versatile leadership. And that truly the most effective way to be a leader is to be adaptive Mm -hmm. and you don't embrace a prototype or a, you know, set of specific traits at all. You adapt based on the needs of your followers, the needs of the situation and who you are and what's going to play well coming from you. If we can step away from the prototype model and create the idea that leadership looks different on everybody, then that leaves a lot of space. And the validation you get isn't, oh, now you're inhabiting a female prototype of being a leader. Exactly. It's now you're inhabiting a prototype of an effective leader, which isn't really a prototype at all. It's just that it's working. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. I think one of the relationships that I love the most about this is she mentioned mentoring, but the, one of the the key types of mentoring that I think is effective for this, especially for executives who have been in positions where it hasn't been challenged before, but they are leaning in and they are responsive to this call is reverse mentoring mm-hmm. and getting yourself someone. And I've, I've had this even in my context where I've had an older gentleman, an older white male who is very responsive to wanting to gain better insights to the other. And I say other as like a broad sweeping umbrella of anyone who is not a white male. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a, it's, it can be a beautiful relationship. It, it also requires, you know, that someone who is older and maybe who is primarily in a traditional mindset around mentorship, be accountable to just being in that receiving position of learning. That's a big part of being an ally, right? Staying curious. Exactly. And trying to be empathetic and understand and asking questions and, you know, not necessarily putting the burden on the one black person in your life to tell you about the black experience. Right. I know. (laughs) But, you know, asking questions and being curious and trying to understand. Yeah. That's not just you waiting for people to tell you. It's you being proactive and going out and reading and asking questions and things like that. It seems like the the predominant theme is staying curious. Yes. Whether it's adversity and you're saying, what was this for? Or if we're in a situation and we're in the other, you don't have to have all the answers. Mm -hmm. I think that's really what it boils down to is, you know, giving people the space to be validated, to remain curious and um, to grow. Yeah. And being curious is great for you, right? Like staves off dementia and Alzheimer's. It makes you more interesting, (laughs) a better friend, a better partner. Like, I mean, really everybody. Uh, Stay curious. Stay curious. (laughs) But I thought this was a great, this was a great conversation with Catherine. I love, you know, that she's at a very different point in her career than we are. And so she can look back and talk, I thought very honestly and openly about how things have changed and how she's had to change to deal with them. I thought that was really lovely. Yeah, I did too. I really love this episode. Well, folks, thanks so much for joining us. We wish you the best with your relationships this week.